I think most people in Washington don't really know Hakeem Jeffries. He really holds his cards close to best. For the most part, it's very positive. He listens, he thinks strategically, but he's also got some problems. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, December 1st, and today Tara Palmieri is here to talk about the new leader of House Democrats, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries of New York. Who is he, how will he lead, and how did he end up succeeding Nancy Pelosi? And later, Tina Wynn is here to discuss Donald Trump's weirdly low energy early 2024 campaign and his latest flirtation with ultra far-right extremists. She answers the question, is his candidacy already cooked? We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. I think it's holiday party kickoff season because Tara Palmieri has joined me today and she's dressed up in a very festive outfit, ready to go to a Christmas party. How are you doing, Tara? Good. I'm ready to take in the season. (laughs) Uh, Don't drink too much eggnog. We're only halfway through the week. I want to talk to you today about Hakeem Jeffries, who is the new post-Pelosi leader of the House Democrats, and also Kevin McCarthy, who should be, continue to be the leader of House Republicans, unless something goes haywire. I want to get to that in a second. But first of all, Hakeem Jeffries is the new leader of House Democrats. He won't be speaker. He succeeded Pelosi. He'll also be the first black leader in the House, which is historic. I do think that despite making history, despite the fact that yeah, people in D.C. kind of know who he is, he shows up on cable news sometimes, most people, one, most people don't know any congressman, most people don't really know much about Hakeem Jeffries. So just to step back, why is he the guy who's been anointed to lead Democrats in the House moving forward? You're totally right. I think most people in Washington don't really know Hakeem Jeffries. He really holds his cards close to best. He's kind of like a silent operator, I would say, and a good listener. I'm talking to one of his former staffers who's still very close to him, Michael Hardaway, who was his um, communications director and his senior advisor. And I'm like, okay, of course, he's going to have great things to say about Hakeem Jeffrey, but like, what do people really say about him? And for the most part, it's very positive, but he's a rare introvert in Washington. He listens, he thinks strategically, But he's also got some problems because the few times he has really like spoken out, it's been in a way that's upset his progressive colleagues. Even though he's a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, he's a very progressive member actually in his voting. He's from New York City. Yeah. Like a lot of his a lot of his New York delegation is is are are squatty. The the (laughs) truth is, is that he's sort of like he's angered the progressives by celebrating their losses when they primaried incumbents. Like he has a pack, the new the I think it's called the new blue act pact or something like that blue act pact with josh gottheimer as a moderate and their whole um mo was we are going to protect incumbents and he knows that he's got more strength with moderate uh, members and you know aoc said oh there's got to be some healing in the caucus there's some issue there because they know that he has been trying to fend off progressive challengers but like when you're in leadership you your job is to protect incumbents but, you know, some felt that he really danced on the grave of some of these progressive challengers. It's also the fact like they're going to be in the minority. And so like during the BIF, for example, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, 
the squad, based on process, decided to vote against the largest investment in um, greening the economy in American history because they wanted the bill to be bigger. For a minute, that represented a problem because if you're in the majority and trying to pass bills and six to eight to 10 of your caucus start to peel off and say no, then you can't pass a bill. But if you're in the minority, you know, the squad will just mostly just throw darts and raise money and tell Democrats what they should be doing better. So he doesn't have to worry about them that much, do you think? I don't know. I just think that like if all the Republicans are going after the Biden administration probably aggressively, it's better for him if the Dems in disarray, you know, uh, narrative doesn't take hold. If some of the more fringe ideas in the party don't become the narrative, right? Like defund the police um, and other, um, you know, sort of squad promoted ideas. And so I think for him, he kind of, he needs to keep them in line too. Like he needs to keep his caucus in line. So I sort of asked his aide, you know, what's he going to do to make amends with AOC, et cetera, and the progressives. And he said, you know, remind them what we have in common, that we have so much more in common. I don't know if that necessarily works, but Michael Hardaway worked for both Obama and Hakeem Jeffries. And he said they're actually both very similar. They're intellects, they're thinkers. And, you know, they were both lawyers and that really Hakeem has come into his communication skills, which is actually like probably the biggest part of being a minority leader is being a communicator. Right. And then also raising money for the majority to take back the house. He's got to be fundraising, too. And, you know, he's got Nancy Pelosi there in the background. That should be useful, I would think. So that's what I was going to say. Like, Pelosi is no longer leader after two decades of of leading the Democrats, but she is not resigning from Congress. So, you know, she'll be there to help and she'll also be there to help, we should say, the new whip, Catherine Clark from Revia, Massachusetts, and, and Pete Aguilar from California, who's the caucus chair. But she'll still be able to make calls. She'll still be able to help him. It's like your aging quarterback who gets injured and the young guy comes in. You know, you can help the young guy in the locker room until you retire. And I think that's going to be really valuable for him. I think so, too. Also, her donor network is insane. Like, the thing is, she really was able to rule with an iron fist. And I don't know that that's necessarily his style. I think he's more of a consensus builder. Um, But I think you realize when you're in the job that sometimes you just aren't going to reach consensus. And like you're going to need to play hardball. So it'll be interesting to see if, you know, the the cheerleading team, which everyone seems to be so pro-Hakeem except for progressives, if there start to be issues with him because you're not always going to be able to find consensus all the time, right? And like, how is he going to keep the troops in line? It's He's got more power probably than any other recent minority leader just because the margins are so slim. Exactly. You talked to Michael Hardaway about this in, in your interview with him. And- We've been saying, you and I on this podcast, that McCarthy, even if he wins a speaker, will just have the most chaotic speakership because he's got to keep all of these rowdy Republicans in line. The flip side of that is Hakeem can make decisions about where Democrats can cross party lines and pass bills. He can decide where to hold back. And that's just going to be really interesting to watch him navigate that. I mean, he might be geez, one of the most powerful minority leaders in a generation in that sense. Totally. And I think he's got to pick what his concessions are going to be. 
you know, he's going to need to get concessions from the Republicans that are going to not just make the moderates happy, but also the progressives. But also, like a lot of people are saying, he's starting on third base. There's a feeling that this bar has been set very high for him, I think. Yes. In terms of raising money and getting the majority back. So I want to talk about the majority real quick. Where's McCarthy at? I mean, we've talked about this before. Like he was, you know, elected leader of House Republicans, but he still has to get that 218 vote on the floor on January 3rd. A bunch of MAGA Republicans like Matt Gates and, and Andy Biggs have said, hell no. And they're trying to stop him. What's the latest? Is he going to be speaker? Well, it's not looking good. Basically, if Republicans get to 222, can only lose four votes, right, to get to 218. That may or may not be the case. He may not need 218, maybe 217, because there was a recent death in the Democratic Party and the special election likely won't be held before the speaker's vote on January 3rd, although I'm not sure yet. Donald McEachin will likely be replaced by a Democrat. But regardless, if there isn't a replacement by then, it lowers the threshold of votes for McCarthy. But the numbers are still not good. So there's five people who are outwardly hell knows, okay? And I kind of pressure tested them. I pinged them and I was like, is there anything? A seat on the rules committee that basically rubber stamps the bill before it goes to the House floor. It's a very powerful committee. And this is the House Freedom Caucus, the MAGA wing of the party that's really resisting Kevin McCarthy. And, you know, they all seem to be like, I know. <laughs> One of them, Congressman Matt Rosendale, he's interested in running for Senate in Montana. And, I, and someone suggested, well, maybe because he's interested in running for Senate in two years, he might be more amenable to a deal. His office said only under extreme circumstances would he vote for uh, Kevin McCarthy, Matt Gates, who's sort of the, the ringleader, along with Andy Biggs, um, he said, anyone who thinks Ralph Norman or, or Rosendale would be amenable to cutting deals doesn't know them. Maybe McCarthy can lose five members now and still be speaker. But Andy Biggs has said that he thinks that there are as many as 10 members, other members, perhaps even more, that are hard nosed against Kevin McCarthy because they had a conference vote and 31 of them were a silent nose. Now, these are, I'm talking about five people who publicly would have to go back on their word to support him. He may not need to get those five. It might be such a razor thin vote, but he can't lose any more than five. That's for sure at this point. And we still don't even know what the final vote is going to be for Republicans. Like It's going to be between 220 and 222. McCarthy is dealing with a handful of people and it could be more. And it just seems that every single day more people are coming out saying that they oppose his leadership. And he is willing to take this to the floor, which means this could be a very dramatic end to his rise to speakership because he'd be, you know, in front of everyone. C-SPAN, baby. And then who steps up next? Steve Scalise time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, Tara, it's not going to be a very fun holiday season out here in California in Bakersfield for Kevin McCarthy and his family because he's going to be on the phone constantly until January 3rd. All right, Tara, thank you so much. Enjoy your Christmas party. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Ben Landy asked Tina Wynn if Trump's candidacy is already dead in the water. I'm Ben Landy, here with Tina Wynn. Hey, Tina. Hi, Ben. So I want to talk about two storylines that are dominating GOP politics right now, because in, in many ways they're intertwined. One, obviously, is the sort of confused and muted fallout in GOP circles from Donald Trump having dinner with Kanye West, now an avowed anti-Semite, 
and the extremist commentator Nick Fuentes, who is a notorious white nationalist and Holocaust denier. Great guys. Mm. In other ways, there's this bigger story which is playing out at the same time, which is the surprisingly underwhelming nature of Trump's 2024 campaign so far. The Kanye Fuentes scandal has given a lot of people in the GOP yet another reason to ditch this guy if they weren't inclined to support Trump already. But even before that, there had been this sort of weird two-week period after Trump announced where he's holed up in Mar-a-Lago. He's shitposting on Truth Social about all of his enemies and his personal grievances and election conspiracy nonsense. And there's really no positive or affirmative political agenda whatsoever. And so I'm curious what you are hearing from your sources right now about the rollout of the Trump 24 campaign so far and how this particular botched scandalous dinner party plays into the growing doubts about this presidential run. I mean, the question that the people I've talked to have had is like, does he actually want this thing or is he doing this for attention? It came up multiple times during the conversations I was having. Like, one, why is he still hanging around Mar-a-Lago having dinner with celebrities and being so, like, starstruck by them that he doesn't realize there's an avowed white supremacist sitting next to him? And two, he hasn't come out with any sort of vision for what he wants America to look like. He has no governing goal. He has nothing to say other than, I'm back, guys. It's me. Don't you remember how wonderful it was with me? What you're seeing right now is this kind of growing realization within the GOP that there is a way to attack Trump that's not, he's a bad person. It's, he's really bad at winning us elections. And maybe 2016 was a one-off. One of the things that an activist I spoke to pointed out was that there are these polls coming out from conservative groups that are literally saying, you know, Ron DeSantis could actually beat you in these primary states. And for a pollster to come out and start saying these things, pollsters like Club for Growth, Commonwealth Foundation, is pretty bold and something you wouldn't have seen like a year ago even. It's interesting that you mentioned the apparent laziness or lack of focus in Trump's campaign so far. There's a sense of deja vu here in Trump's approach that is very reminiscent of his early 2016 campaign where it wasn't clear, is this guy serious? Is he just doing it for the headlines and to boost his own profile? And then as he gained momentum, as the candidacy became more serious and he gained a following, he himself became more invested in the process. Maybe even up until election day, he wasn't sure if he was actually going to win, but he got more invested in the campaign as it went along. I wonder if we are going to see that dynamic play out again here, where he's off to a little bit of a slow start, in part because he wanted to throw himself into the ring so, so early to crowd out the rest of the field. But it doesn't seem like he's actually prepared to like hit the road, start holding big rallies, because there's just still so much time until election day. Right. And he's working in a different environment than he was in 2016. One, he had so much free media. He had CNN covering his every other word. He had the element of novelty and breaking the established mold of what a Republican politician would sound like. He was new. He was fresh. It's been six years of us knowing what Donald Trump is about to say. And it's not clear that there's anyone left in the country who can be persuaded to vote for Donald Trump for the amount of people that Donald Trump is driving away from him. Like, you can't really have anyone right now who at this point claims that they don't know who Donald Trump is and wants to find out more about him. You could give that 
designation to DeSantis or Pompeo or whoever. There is a lane for someone to be curious about anyone who's not Trump because Trump is such a known quantity at this point. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Voters know who this guy is. They either like him or they don't, but he's not necessarily winning people over at this point. And in fact, he's probably concentrating his total addressable market and making it smaller as he aligns himself with more and more fringe figures, whether that's Kanye West, who it's hard to believe now he is a fringe figure, but he absolutely is. Nick Fuentes, who Trump says he didn't know who he was. Whether you believe that or not, he is a a white supremacist, a white nationalist. Tina, I'm also curious, how much do you think that the deflating midterm results actually played into this growing skepticism within the GOP of Trump's third candidacy? And to what extent do you think that's sort of a convenient excuse for dumping this guy? It's convenient, but it's right. There's no universe in which the election deniers win primaries, that Dr. Oz wins a primary if it hadn't been for Trump pressing his finger on the scale and encouraging his diehard base voters to come out, vote in primary elections, crowd out more moderate electable candidates. Like he's great at driving those people out. But once you launch people who just can't win elections and got the nomination because they liked Donald Trump a lot and Trump like ran them through that humiliating gauntlet of visiting him at Mar-a-Lago, sucking up to him, showing that they were the most MAGA of the candidates and believed the things that he wanted them to say, which is he won the election of 2020 and it was totally stolen. It's his fault that the GOP got stuck with those specific candidates. And so it's his fault that they ended up losing because he put those guys there in the first place. He made those guys. He gestated those guys in his like cesspool of conspiracy theories. And now the GOP is losing because of it. Trump and other people in the Republican Party don't feel like they can afford to alienate the kind of people who do know who Nick Fuentes is, who are fans of Marjorie Taylor Greene. At the same time, they are sort of doing this dance where there's always this sense of plausible deniability. They're walking this line, and it's really an uncomfortable one for fellow members of the party, people who don't approve of the direction that things have been moving. But the plausible deniability is getting more and more difficult. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, she's not equivalent to Nick Fuentes, but she did speak at a conference that he hosted. Uh, She later said, like Trump, that she didn't know who he was, that she doesn't approve of the things that he stands for. That's the same dance that Trump's defenders are doing now, again, But the problem for the GOP is that there is now functionally only one degree of separation between the party luminaries like Marjorie Taylor Greene, frankly, and Donald Trump, and some of the most extreme, racist, fascist elements of that party. And the question they keep wrestling with is how do they distance themselves from those people without alienating a base that they have now cultivated and which has become a meaningful electorate for them in elections that they need to win? Yeah, that's an interesting question, too. There was this report that just came out from NBC. My old colleague from Politico, Mark Caputo, wrote this. And apparently, the Kanye team is spinning this appearance as a troll of Donald Trump, organized by Milo Yiannopoulos. So (laughs) if you remember that name at all, God bless you if you do. But um, to recap, he was a a conservative provocateur at Breitbart who um, was really shocking in 2016 for being an openly gay conservative Republican who would say really anti-PC things and then kind of got booted from the movement for making pedophilia jokes. 
He has now become Kanye West's communications manager. Apparently, he told NBC that the reason that he wanted to make Donald Trump look like an idiot is because the MAGA base and the white nationalist base is actually very pissed off with Donald Trump and wants to lord their power over him and humiliate him. I don't know how much it was actually a grand scheme to trick Donald Trump into having dinner with a white supremacist. But if you go into the disgusting fever swamp parts of um, the far right movement, it's a little telling that they're starting to pick at him this way too. Yeah, and I think, you know, the fact that you're hearing these names surface again points to exactly the reason that GOP leadership is such migraines. Even in the last two weeks since Trump announced his presidency, all of these disgraced figures, sort of um, marginal figures from the clown show of the early Trump years are suddenly back in the headlines, whether it's because Elon Musk is letting them back onto Twitter or because they're attaching themselves to, you know, the Trump show part three. It's Milo. It's it's Trump. They're all suddenly back in the headlines. And this is not the kind of party that uh, senior GOP leadership really wants to run. They got a two-year reprieve from Trump dominating headlines in the worst possible way, politicians being asked always to answer for him and to repudiate things that he said and does, the people he associates with. And we'll see what happens. I mean, it's a little bit like Lucy with the football. Republicans have said before that they are collectively tired of Trump and ready to move on. We'll see if that actually happens. But um, I think in large part, like you said, Tina, it'll have a lot to do with how he's actually polling. And if the broader GOP electorate looks like it's ready to move on from this guy, the politicians are going to follow them to that position. The problem is, can Trump recall the magic that ended up getting MAGA people through the primaries? I think it's telling that all of these polls that I mentioned earlier were saying that Ron DeSantis was going to win all of them. It doesn't seem like the favor is good for Trump in that regard. We'll see what happens. Tina, thanks as always. Good to see you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.